The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Thank you. John, Victoria, and Barb, thank you so much for sharing. And uh, Acts 1-8 is the imagery that we think of when we think of missions. We do think of ourselves as being called by God just as the apostles were to to take the gospel from where we are and fan it out to the places, the uttermost places of the world. And you would really understand uh, Samaria to be very akin to Garden Hill, uh, which is, uh, you know, close enough, but, but another culture. And um, so we continue to pray. Pray for the partnership that we have with Pathway Camp Ministries. We have uh, partnerships with various mission organizations, and these are really important uh, and what matters most in them is the relationships that we have with the people that are leading these organizations. And uh, pray that God will guide us. It's easy to think that maybe, uh, what does one week a year do? And as these folks that have just shared have reminded us that uh, it does a lot. It does a lot to plant the seed. It does a lot to um, share the love of Christ for that week and encourage the, the, those that are wanting to know the Lord or that are hungry to know God and His love. And then pray also that God will show us what else we can do and what, how this partnership can grow as, uh, as uh, kids even from Garden Hill come to Winnipeg and so on. So let us pray for a moment right now. Lord our God, we thank you for this team that was sent to Garden Hill for Pathway Camp Ministries and their staff. We thank you, Lord, for the favor that you've shown this group with the chief and the reserve there, and we pray that you'd continue to show us favor. Let there be open doors there, and show us which doors we should be opening and walking through. And bless, Lord, all of the work and the ministry and the words and the love that was shared there, and prepare us for next year. And even this year, Lord, show us how there might be points of contact. So encourage and bless. And Lord, those that went, we pray that the blessing upon their own hearts and lives will be, uh, will be manifest in their, in their walk with you, in their relationships here. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this church family, and we are excited about all that you have for us. We, we want to be the body of Christ in this world. We want to look upon the world as you did, Lord Jesus, when you saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, as needing to return to the overseer of their souls. And Lord, each one of us that are sitting here have people in our lives that you've placed that are in that condition, needing to know you, the shepherd of their souls. Make us, Lord, to see them. Help us to see them as you see them. And give us your grace and your spirit and your boldness. Lord, let this year unfold in a way that shows more and more people coming into the kingdom because of our, our efforts and our prayers. And uh, now, Lord, as we open up your word, we pray that, that uh, there would be something very specific for each person, that your Holy Spirit would so take my words and apply them to our hearts so that when we leave later on, we will know, God, that you have spoken. We pray in Jesus' name. In August of 1978, 
the first successful hot air balloon flight across the Atlantic was taken. And uh, it was uh, in a basket called the Double Eagle II. Touched down in a barley field near a small village in France, six days after it had left the coast of Maine. And when asked the difference between that flight compared to previous unsuccessful flights, one of the crew members named Maxie Anderson said this. He said, I don't think that you can fly the Atlantic without experience. And that's one of the reasons it had never been done before. (laughs) And then he said this. Success in any venture is just the intelligent application of failure. Success in any venture is just the intelligent application of failure. We could apply that corporately as a church, as a family of believers, as we think about what it is that God has called us to be doing this year as we get ready to raise money to build a new building that will house the worship and the, and the fellowship and the ministry of our church family for the decades to come. We could think about maybe things that we've learned in the past years. But I really want us to take it more individually down here into our hearts where God has maybe a personal message for us because I think that it is true for us individually that failures are the places where God teaches us a lot of lessons. Another author said it this way, there's only one thing more painful than learning from experience and that is not learning from experience. How many of us can testify to the fact that we've learned through our failures much more than we've learned through our successes. People don't like to talk about their failures, though. I mean, who wants to talk about that stuff? I'd rather talk about the good stuff that I've been accomplishing. John F. Kennedy said that uh, success has many failures, our fathers, but failure is an orphan that no one wants to claim. And I look back this past week again, and I look back at my life, and as I can see it unfold, I could say that from an early age, God used failures in my life to teach me things about him that I I look back and say, well, they're so small. But at the time, they were huge, and they taught me lessons. I failed swimming lessons every summer for about three summers in a row, even lied to my parents and told my parents they ran out of badges. (laughs) My brother was in cahoots with me and later on confessed. I failed grade five math I still think I'd fail grade five math today. I failed my learner's permit. All guys do that, right? I failed some sports teams that I wanted to make. I, my first girlfriend dumped me. Come to think of it, my second one, I think, did too. It's amazing I got married, isn't it? And at the time, some of these things, they were huge. I look back and I think, well, they weren't a big deal, but they were huge. And I think God was doing something in my heart at the time, shaping me, teaching me something about it. And as a pastor, I can say that success and failure are very slippery things to measure. This morning, though, scripture that we're looking at, though, is, is not speaking about the kinds of failures that I've been describing, I'm not making a team, not passing a test, etc., But rather, the kind of things we're looking at today are deeper lessons and weightier failures, things like moral failures and sinful failures, and times in our lives when we walked away from God and not let Christ be Lord and so on, and in the middle of it all, we we can 
have the opportunity through brokenness of learning some deep lessons that God is wanting to teach us and pursue us for. Uh, or we can walk the other way and not learn the lesson and make life a little harder. And so as we conclude the Gospel of John today in chapter 21, we're going to be looking at the restoration of the Apostle Peter after his failure to deny knowing Jesus. And if you were with us last week as we looked at chapter 20, you will have thought that, that we ended the study. I mean, the credits were rolling, so to speak. You know, I mean, the, the verse up here, uh, Jesus did many other things uh, not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. End of story. Jesus has been seen. He's resurrected. He's been seen by his apostles. Uh, the other things he did, but we don't have time to write about them, but these are written so you might believe in. And it's like John is, the credits are rolling. <laughs> you know, you're up from your seat in the movie theater, you're walking out, and all of a sudden the scene comes up again, and you, whoa, you sit back down. And John 21, 1, Jesus, or John continues, and he says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. Whoa, whoa, let's sit back down. What's going on? I thought it was done. What is it that John, the author of the gospel of Jesus here, is saying, I don't want to leave this to your imagination, reader. I want to tell you what happened. And I think that actually you probably, if you didn't have chapter 21 in your Bible, you would probably conclude that there's one thing that's left hanging here. There's a principal character in the Gospel of John that, that is unresolved, and it's Peter. Because the last time we saw him, really, was when he denied knowing Jesus. And this is the guy that's going to lead the church in the book of Acts and, and get this whole thing rolling under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so... Peter's failure had to be resolved. His relationship with Jesus had not yet been resolved after his denial. And Peter had betrayed or had denied Jesus, and he had sinned, I think, greater than the other apostles because he had boasted of so much more than they had. And his attitude had led him into sin more grievously. And so the big idea of the sermon this morning is that Peter's restoration to the Lord marks a turning point in his spiritual journey, his spiritual formation, preparing him to be filled with the Holy Spirit and used by God. His relationship to Jesus needed to be restored for all other aspects of his life to fall into place. And, and my contention is that all of us are just like Peter that when restoration with Jesus is right, all other facets of our lives fall into place as well. And so Jesus, as we will look at the scripture now, finds Peter, and he is presumably back where the turf is familiar, at the Sea of Galilee. So would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21, and uh, let's read this together. John chapter 21 and we'll begin in verse 1. And if you'd like to stand with me, stand now and listen to the Word of God. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. 
So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off. And he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. Did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted and when you are older, you will come stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Before we look at our outline, which is on the green insert in your bulletin, I want to just identify the scene once again. Here we are. You can imagine the smells of the Sea of Galilee. You can imagine the sight of the boats in the harbor. You can imagine the gulls and their sounds. And it was a familiar place for Peter. But before we get into the outline, I just want to state what is supposedly obvious but maybe not so and the most obvious thing is that when there is a disconnect in a relationship when there is a discord an offense that takes place an encounter needs to reconcile it an encounter needs to be had to resolve these tensions that happen in relationships I think it's just the most obvious lesson that we could learn from this. We've all had people in our lives, you know. I've heard stories from umpteen people. Old dad, he, you know, if you had something wrong, he just, it would just get resolved by not talking about it. There's moms and there's dads. There's children that are allowed to go on with this way of not resolving conflict. There's marriage partners that function in marriage without ever addressing conflict that has occurred 
somebody taking the initiative to say, could we talk that through? I'm just saying this is an obvious application. Jesus is is showing us that's not the way of his kingdom. So Jesus takes the initiative, and the passage that is before us tells us more about Jesus than it does about Peter, because Jesus was the one that pursued Peter before it was even on Peter's heart to pursue Jesus. And so with that, let's take a look at the Scripture. And there's five points I want to share with you. The first thing is, I want to answer the question, what is it that restoration looks like? And there's five ways that Peter demonstrates what it looks like. And the first thing is that in relationship to Jesus, restoration is from from running away from Him to running toward Him. It's kind of obvious maybe, but... But let's clarify this. This is the first observation that we see so clearly. Peter, among all those seven in the boat, Peter is the one most eager to talk to Jesus and to see Jesus. Why is that? More than all the other disciples, he he grabs the garment that he's taken off and he jumps into the water and he swims that hundred yards to shore. Now, Michael Phelps could do it in 47 seconds, And Peter's very eager to see Jesus, but I'm pretty sure it took him a little longer than that. And when he gets there, he just wants to talk to Jesus one-on-one. How eager he was. That's not the Peter that we saw earlier. There's a parallel text in Luke chapter 5 at the beginning of the discipleship of the 12. And this one, John 21, is at the end of the discipleship of the twelve, three years later. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus comes upon the Sea of Galilee, and Peter has been fishing with the others all night long and caught nothing, just like this text. And in that situation, Jesus says, put out into deeper water and let down your net for a catch. And when they do so, they just can't even, the boat starts to sink, they have to call their partners over. What is Peter's response in Luke chapter 5? Do you remember? He says, Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And now, three years later, when Peter has more to be ashamed of than he did back then, for he had denied knowing Jesus on the night of his crucifixion, now Peter, the same Peter, is running toward Jesus instead of running away from him. What's changed? What has Peter learned in this interlude? Well, I think that the attitude in John 21 that Peter has is the attitude that Christ wants from all of us. There is a universal response of the creature to the creator, of the sinner to the holy one. There is a universal response that says, I want to put as much space between me and holy God as I can. Because we cannot stand in the light of His presence without some kind of intervening grace. And so Peter had learned something in those three years of discipleship that caused him to run toward the very one that he was running from earlier. And that's the incredible thing of what salvation does to someone who is a sinner. 
is that the very God that people are trying to avoid at all costs in this life, trying to put space between us, trying to admit there is no God, trying to convince yourself that you don't need God, trying, there's so much, and all of a sudden, when grace and mercy gets a hold of that heart, the very one that we are running away from, <laughs> he becomes the refuge. He becomes the rock to which we cling. Peter learned that. Peter learned that if Jesus is about anything, he's about forgiveness. He's about mercy. It's incredible. And so Peter runs to Jesus. The relationship with Jesus that Peter has in John 21 signals a spiritual maturity not seen earlier in Peter. And we should always be conscious of our sin. We should always be conscious of our sin. But the awareness of our sin should not keep us away from God. Instead, it should drive us and draw us near to Him, not away from Him. So this morning, to begin with, what is your relationship with the Lord like recently? Have you sinned? Are you running away from God because of that? Or are you drawing near to find that He actually is the one that alone can heal your soul. The second thing I want you to note is, is more in relationship to self. And in relation to self, the journey is from pride to humility. Not only the restoration is drawing near to Christ, but it also entails uh, laying down our pride. We get the impression from the Gospels that Peter saw himself as a cut above the rest of the, the 11 disciples. I don't know if you read Peter that way, but I've read the Gospels several times. I feel that Peter sees himself as a cut above the rest, kind of an entitlement position, kind of a first among equals. Um, Peter saw himself that way. We get indications of it throughout the Gospels, but particularly we see on the last evening when the betrayal took place, and they're all together in that upper room at a private meal, and Jesus tells them, this is Jesus the all-knowing one, telling them, all of you are going to betray me. All of you are going to fall away, he says, not betray. All of you are going to fall away. All of you are going to fall away. And Peter takes exception. He says, no, no, you're, you're wrong, Jesus. Even if everyone else falls away, I will never. I am willing to go to die for you, Peter says. And that's when Jesus said, really, Peter, did you know that before tomorrow morning, you're going to deny knowing me not once, not twice, but three times? And Peter's angry at Jesus. It'll never be so, he says. We admire the boldness initially of, of Peter, but Jesus could see the heart, and it was coming out of a heart of pride. It was Peter's pride talking, and he fell away just as the others did. He denied knowing Christ. You might wonder, why is it that John puts some of the details in the script as we see it? And I don't know why on some counts. Honestly, I have read some really harebrained ideas about what the 153 fish are all about. And uh, it's not divisible by seven, by the way. So that's not the point. Uh, we're going to leave that one. But the one little note of chapter 21, verse 9, that there's a fire of burning coals there. 
I think, has some meaning. Because when was the last time that Peter stood around a fire of burning coals? <laughs> Just a few nights earlier in the courtyard of, of the high priest, when within eye distance or earshot, he denied knowing Jesus three times as he sat around that fire and warmed himself. And a servant girl said, surely you're one of the Galileans that followed Jesus. He says, I don't know the man. And I don't know, but that, that fire seems to be reminiscent of that. And so when Jesus asked Peter the question, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? We have to ask our, ourselves the question, what, what are the these as well? I think there's three possible interpretations. First of all, he'd gone back to the nets. So maybe Jesus is saying, Peter, look at the boat, look at the nets, look at the sea, look at the fish. Do you love me more than these? Another interpretation is he's around his fishing buddies. He's got his, his brother and his best friends with him. And, he, and Jesus is maybe saying, Peter, do you love me more than these guys? The third interpretation, which I prefer, is that he is saying, do you, Peter, love me more than these guys love me? Because remember, the, the incident that Jesus last had with Peter was saying, even if all the others deny knowing you, I will never. And Jesus now is confronting that rebellious, proud spirit. And he's saying, really, Peter? You really think you're something special. Do you think that you love me more than these guys love me? It could be that that's the interpretation. It makes sense, I think, in the context. And the question is Jesus saying, do you agree with my assessment of you that, that you need to be humbled? The interesting twist is that Jesus does ask Peter to lay down his life eventually but it's not going to be in proudful self-dependence. It's rather in humility. And by the time that John finishes writing his gospel, the prediction of Jesus would have been fulfilled that Peter had died uh, on, a crucifix on a cross under the evil emperor Nero. And uh, in that situation, the early fathers of the church in their history books write that Peter wanted to be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy of being crucified the way that Jesus, his master, was crucified. He'd learned some things about humility. When Pat and I were at the Vatican this past summer and we were in St. Peter's Basilica, there were various depictions of Peter crucified upside down that artists had given. Next, Peter's restoration <clears throat> takes him from shame to forgiveness. Excuse me. <clears throat> It has been pointed out that the question Jesus repeats three times is a direct relation to the three times that Peter denied knowing Christ. This is clear, isn't it? Three times denying him, three times asking him, do you love me? And whether we see it on the surface or not, uh, the denial was the most shameful experience that Peter ever endured. I believe so. This, this denying of Jesus was the deepest shame that Peter ever experienced. And it would have been probably a defining experience for his life had Jesus not pursued him to resolve and forgive this, this sin. 
and to restore him to the grace of God. I don't know that we can, can fully understand the motives of why we think and do the many things that we think and do. I mean, the heart, human heart is a, is a mystery. But unresolved shame <clears throat> is often at the root of really messy stuff. This is the way someone said it, that guilt is feeling bad about something and shame is believing that you are the bad something. Guilt is focused on the behavior. Shame is focused on yourself. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Not just bad as sinners, but unredeemably bad. That's what shame does to us. An author by the name of Luke Gilkerson, who used to work with an organization called Covenant Eyes, which is an internet accountability software, he believes that this is an incomplete definition of shame and these two words, shame and guilt. And the incompleteness of it, he says, is related to the fact that both words get defined in relationship to sin instead of in relationship to Jesus under a new identity. He quotes the counselor David Paulison, and he says that guilt is an awareness of failure against a standard. That's guilt. I didn't measure up to the standard. I feel guilty. But shame is a sense of failure in the eyes of someone. Shame doesn't exist if nobody's watching. Guilt can exist because I didn't live up to what I thought I should. But shame is what happens when we know somebody else we're conscious is watching or finds out. Then I feel shame, not just guilt. <clears throat> well, let's work with that for a moment. I believe that is why men and women who sin secretly and do, do not feel shame until sin is exposed before the eyes of someone else. And this is where we can fool ourselves. This is the amazing thing, is that we fool ourselves in this because we think that we feel worse when we get caught and, and we have to confess our sin to someone and we mistakenly think that shame is not influencing us before we are caught or found out or we confess voluntarily. We think that shame somehow doesn't come into activity or play as long as it's sort of hidden. But we're deceiving ourselves. We are actually very influenced by shame. And that's because we are all creatures created in the image of God. And we are all creatures that God has taken His law pen and written on our hearts and written on our conscience the law of God. We are created in the image of God, and the law of God is written on our very spirit. And so whether we think that someone is watching or not, we know in our spirit, God is always watching me. And so you think, maybe I don't have to feel shame because of this, but you do feel shame inwardly. Your spirit feels shame. Shame is affecting you until you resolve that sin before Jesus. We all live, as the old, the ancients used to say in Latin, we all live our lives quorum Deo, before the face of God. He is the all-knowing God. There's never a moment that you can hide from Him. 
and your spirit knows that. The atheist that you work with, their spirit knows that they live their lives quorum deo, even though with their minds and their mouths they may say, I don't even believe in God. Well, guess what? He believes in you. And so shame is this incredible factor that influences us to do messy and terrible things and think of ourselves in destructive ways. At our core, we not only have a guilt about our sin, but a shame because we know that God is always watching. We can deny it, etc., but we can't hide from it. And so you go on a journey with shame. You'll go on one of two journeys. You'll go on a journey down into darkness and secrecy of shame. Or you'll go on a journey like Peter up and out into the light and into the forgiveness of honesty and transparency. Peter was motivated not only by the guilt of his sin, but by the shame of it because he knew it was before the eyes of Jesus. Now, it was before the eyes of Jesus anyway, but it's interesting that in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, it says that on that night, when Peter was warming himself by the fire, it says that, at, that at he, after he had denied knowing Jesus the third time, Luke twenty-two sixty-one says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Wow, that must have been awful. And immediately after that, it says, and Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Shame. Friends, you and I, we live our lives, quorum Deo. We live our lives before the face of God. You cannot deny it, hide, run from it. It is a fact. We live our lives, quorum Deo. There's nothing so sweet, however, as the forgiveness of God. There's nothing so sweet as knowing that this God whose life, I, uh, whose face I live before is a God of mercy who's shining down on me, whose love through Jesus Christ is upon me, and I don't have to be afraid to be honest with Him. There's nothing more freeing than lifting the burden of shame off of me by the grace of Jesus and the love of God, and forgiveness flows into my heart. There's nothing better than that. Jesus went to Galilee in pursuit of Peter. And I'm telling you today, he's pursuing you too. He's pursuing every person who's living in shame. He's pursuing every person who's gone on the journey downward into darkness. And he's asking you, just come on out in the light and we can deal with this. You don't have to run away from me. You can run toward me. I'm your best friend. I'm the shepherd of your soul. No one will love you like I love you. Let's move to the fourth point, and that is that in relation to the church, Peter's journey was from isolation back into community. We must not be fooled by Peter, the fact that he's hanging out with the church, the fact that he's in the upper room waiting after the resurrection, the fact that he's among the disciples. Don't get fooled as though his heart is in fellowship with the church. Because notice in the text, in fact, it says in John 21, verse 3, Peter does not say, hey, guys, you want to go fishing? What does he say? He says, I'm going fishing. <laughs> you know, Peter would have been out in that boat all by himself that morning if nobody else would have gone with him. I'm convinced of it. Because he already broken fellowship with the risen Jesus Christ, the head, and he'd broken fellowship with the body of Christ as well, the church. 
He might have been living among them, still hanging out with them, going fishing with them, but he was out of fellowship. You can come to church every Sunday all year and be out of fellowship with Jesus Christ and the body of Christ around you. You can live the double life, but Jesus does not want that. Jesus is going to pursue you. And so authentic relationship is, he, is the calling upon us. And notice that when Jesus restores Peter and recalls him into ministry, what does he say three times? Feed my sheep, my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. He's not calling him into some kind of isolation. He's calling him into the flock, into the body of Christ, into the community of saints. He saves us to restore us to his body. So we can live in community. No more running solo for Peter. Couldn't be that way. And that's true for you and I as well. We, we can't live in isolation. Uh, really, there's no such thing as an isolated, healthy Christian. It just doesn't happen. And I, I would urge you to think on your own life. Because your sin, even your selfish pursuits, even your hobbies, even your own interests can easily take you on a journey away from real fellowship. And you can avoid other brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and you can look like a dismembered part of the body. But Jesus doesn't have or want a dismembered body on earth. He wants a unified body that, that can minister to one another's needs and can show the world around us what his love is all about as well. So I'm going to ask you, do you have some authentic Christian friends? Do you have some people in your life that you could be real with and vulnerable to? Do you have some people that you can come out of the shadows with and say, I, I'd ask for prayer in this area? That's a need in all of our lives. Pursue fellowship with other believers. Whatever your age is, whatever station in life you're at, you need a faith community. And I hope that uh, coming up in, the, in a few weeks as we roll out various programs of Bible studies and, and ministry opportunities and life groups and so on. I hope that you'll, you'll take it seriously to look for an opportunity to, to walk closely in fellowship with other believers in Jesus Christ. Even serving together is an incredible opportunity to draw near to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like the Garden Hill team, I'm sure, experienced when they were up in Garden Hill and they have their devotions every day together. And they share with each other their testimonies and so on. Every year that a Garden Hill team comes back or a team to India or a Bolivia, every time I hear from them, I hear about this incredible dimension that has more to do with them growing inwardly as the body of Christ, not just about what they leave behind in impacting the mission. Well, the last point I want to share, and that is uh, number five, in, in relation to the world, it's all about from going from pleasing self to missional living. Restoration to Jesus means a journey from self-pleasing to missional living. Jesus says it twice to Peter, follow me. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Be a missional Christian. Be someone who thinks of others. And Peter spent the rest of his days in Rome mostly, in the city of Rome for 30 more years after these words were spoken, Peter ministered to the church in Rome. He tried to reach the Roman people for the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was martyred under Nero in Rome, and he spent the rest of his life trying to live missionally. And it means that it's going to be costly for us. 
Missional living means that you're not the center of your life, that others are because Jesus called you to their lives. Missional living means that you look for relationships to love them, to point them to Christ. It means that it's going to be sometimes inconvenient. It means that it's going to cost you some money, some time. It might even cause you to suffer sometimes. But missional living means that, that you realize you've got so much more and you look upon the world as Jesus looked upon the world and you see people as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd that need to return to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. I read recently a quote by a guy named Max Stiles and he, writ that, that he wrote that most Christians in the world today must fear the raised fist. But in North America, we fear the raised eyebrow. It means we're not cool. We're not relevant. Really? Is that true? I think it's true, often. I think that we don't have a lot at stake. I'm not going to get beat up if I talk about Jesus, likely. But I'll get the raised eyebrow. I don't want that to be seen as irrelevant and uncool, living on the wrong side of history. You know, it's interesting that Jesus changes the metaphor. Jesus could have said to Peter, well, let's go catch some fish. I'm recalling you as a fisher of men. He didn't say that. He said, feed my sheep. And all throughout Scripture, Jesus doesn't call himself a fisherman. Fishing is not the metaphor, folks. The primary metaphor is shepherding and sheep. It's, it's not like the attitude we go to the world with is with the hook and the net. The attitude we go to the world with is, these are, these are lost sheep. He looked upon the world and he saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And they need to return to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. We look along, along the world and we don't see them as, let's try to catch them. Let's try to deceive them into coming to church. Let's try. That's nothing to do with it. It has to do with lostness. There are people out there in your world not yet confessing Christ as Lord, they're sheep. And Jesus says, you, you, you're, the, you're the shepherd right now. You're on the front line. Nurture them in. Tend the flock. Shepherd them in. That's what he asks of us. As the worship team comes, um, I would ask you to consider what it is that of Peter's life and of Peter's final scene in the book of John, what is it that resonates with you most? And uh, may the Lord bless you as you ponder what it is that restoration to Jesus looks like in, in, in truth. And then after the closing song, I'll invite Pastor Alf to come and give the benediction. I don't know if we can catch the power of what God might be wanting to do in our midst. Uh, and I say that very seriously. Because this whole summer, as we've missed the ministry of Pastor Terry, we haven't missed the ministry of God. And the church has moved along mightily in its own way. And our hearts have been blessed. And that's not to take anything away from Pastor Terry. It does mean that we have to ask the question, what's God doing? 
And, and you know, when we see all the horror of the world around us and, and all of the, the terror and all of the bad stuff that goes on, we sometimes say to ourselves, God, when are you going to do something? And that's what the psalmist said over and over again. When are you going to do something? Not just would you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, but God, what are you going to do? And God's going to come and fix up the world. And when he comes along to fix up the world, that's why Jesus died on the cross. He grabs a hold of Peter and says, you're in this, buddy. Follow me. Never mind your shame. Never mind all that stuff. Never mind your mistakes. Never mind all your talk. Just get up and follow. Get on with it. I'm here. I've listened. I've heard the pain of the world. And I'd like to do my ministry through you. Oh, God. What an awesome calling you have sent upon us as a people. May we not only ask that you listen to us, but today, O oh God, may we listen to your beating, crying heart. Amen.